How could you make an appeal to the future when not a trace of you, not even an anonymous word scribbled on a piece of paper, could physically survive? Every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, every picture has been repainted, every statue and building has been renamed, every date has been altered, and the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. George Orwell, 1984. Welcome back. This is your hostess with the mostess, Shanna. And it's PJ, your other host. Still okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's adequate. <laughs> Before we start, go ahead, PJ. Take it away. Well, uh, for those of you who follow us on Facebook, uh, first off, thanks for following. Spread the word. Uh, secondly, we are giving away a board game, a tote bag, and a button with our button. yeah with our uh, logo on it. Uh, the game is Wingspan, which uh, for those of you listening, because this isn't a game podcast, it's it was uh, one of the biggest games of 2019, sold over uh, a million million copies. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's it's an awesome game. It's a really good game. Uh, so if you would like a free game, free shipping, uh, feel free to check us out on Facebook and uh, like like that post there yep you gotta like the picture and you yeah. gotta comment on it because we can't see likes yeah <laughs> so make sure make sure you comment on it yeah comment tag a friend that you think would like uh one of our podcasts mm -hmm. and make sure you're following our facebook page and then you're in it to win it it is for valentine's day mm -hmm. it's a good game for couples so it's a perfect game oh now that happy is over, we're not going to discuss <laughs> groundhogs. <laughs> or board games, because this is not a game podcast. Uh, well, because I was right. Um, I called it the day before, obviously, Phil did. Um, six more weeks of winter here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> As it's a 50-degree day. <laughs> it's 52, actually. <laughs> and another thing. That's what our weather is saying. As it gets cold <laughs> and we have snow again in a couple days. Um, so, obviously, we start with a cold opening from 1984. I like would like to take us back to the idea of state hospitals because Pennsylvania was the, I want to say like the, the grandfather of the modern type of system to hopefully rehabilitate people, whether they're criminals or they're mentally insane. That was the goal. Mm -hmm. We had kind of mentioned in passing Eastern State Penitentiary and the design of it, right? Um, we discussed how terrible Penhurst was. But one state hospital that we have overlooked and really haven't discussed was the um, Harrisburg State Hospital. And I think it's important to discuss that one, too, because as you research it, there isn't a lot that you can learn about what happened behind the closed doors. Which is always fishy. Yeah. I even opened up some of the patient records 
And it was just like logs of who was there daily. So you dug deep into this. I dug as deep as I could. Did, did you break out the microfiche? Laura needs to know. <sighs> okay, so <laughs> here's the thing. I did not break out a microfiche. However, I did go on to like um, JSTOR and stuff. So all these really nice scholarly article sections. And they have downloaded those documents. So mm. it was like microfiching without the microfiche, mm. which I appreciate. More. I don't know if it counts. It should. You gotta use the knobs, the wheels, to zip through all the pages. You need to leave now. <laughs> okay, bye. It's my house. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, so I kind of wanted to focus on Harrisburg State because it was another one of our insane asylums. Um, it was government funded. Uh, the Pennsylvania Department of Welfare was in charge of it. But you don't have any of the stories that we have from Pennhurst because Pennhurst had a person walk in. Bill Baldini walked in there and had an expose. This hospital was running at the exact same time. And I'm sure there were abuses. But you wouldn't get it from the picture that is painted. Now, in front of you, of course, our, our listeners can't see it. I gave you an article from City on the Hill because literally it was called the City on the Hill. Just like Penhurst, it was created to be its own little kingdom. And if you read it, it just sounds so happy. No, it sounds lovely. It does. On paper. On paper, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, this is what the government's giving us to read about. So if you've read 1984, which I know you have, you get the idea that if you can control the paper and what people can read about it, then you're controlling the entire story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happening with this. Because the, the more I dug, the more I was like, there's more to this story that I literally cannot find. And the, the verbiage that's used in it. Such a happy place. Yes. Um, so in any case, let's give some background to what it is before we actually go into um, all that extra stuff. So if you're not from Pennsylvania, our... It's now closed, but it was open to the early 2000s, fun fact. Harrisburg State Hospital is just east of the Pennsylvania Farm Show Complex. Um, so, of course, it's in Harrisburg, who would have thought, our state capital. So they kind of call the central PA region. So it's close to us. We're close to Harrisburg, close mm, to... An hour and a half away, yeah. yeah. They're both equidistant for us. Now, it was originally, originally planned in 1845. So we're talking it's, like, old, even, like, for Pennhurst Center. This yeah. is old, okay? Um, but the official name when it was created in 1848 was the Pennsylvania State Lunatic Hospital. Because, again, that was the time period. Those mm -hmm. are the words that are being used. Uh, now, it was based on progressive reforms, and it was kind of headed by Dorothea Dix, who is a big name in the social reformation class. So you think that it would be a wonderful place to be, which is why it's painted in a positive light. And I think... I feel like they did that on purpose because of Pennhurst, because of the expose and all of the legality that came out of it. Um, but again, I, I can't, we'll get into that. Sorry. I don't want to get off topic. But when it comes to this, the first main building was built by architect John Haviland. Now, he probably wouldn't be known to some of our listeners, but he was the person who built Eastern State Penitentiary. 
So he was all about creating buildings that would let in natural light and allow people to be reformed and rehabilitated through God's natural, like, you know, essence and like the beauty of nature around you. So initially it was a beautiful place to be. Like literally it had this like Italian kind of look to it. And so there was lots of open windows. It was just fantastic. Yeah. Um, because if it's anything like Eastern State, uh, Eastern State has wonderful like cathedral style roofs uh they they wanted it to have a church-like feel to really make you feel repentant and to uh reform as you said yep um so really the the houses or i should say that the buildings that were created they have they looked almost like that a cottage plan style very beautiful um now at its peak the entire facility had 70 buildings and it was spread over 1000 acres so we're talking this was bigger than penhurst because penhurst was a little over 600 right mm-hmm. Um, but it was completely self-sufficient. It had its own farm, its own power plant, its own stores, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But it was called the City on the Hill because it was completely owned and operated by the hospital faculty and the mentally ill patients who were there, which I got to say is really cool because, again, on paper, this is what you would hope to see. Yeah, a place absolutely. that yeah, a place that's going to be loving and caring and is doing the best it can. So, if you read the background on this place, they really were trying to take care of their ind- their individual patients. And initially, there was a great ratio of nurses and doctors to patients, and they're very specific in who they would allow to come to their lunatic asylum or to sorry the to the state hospital. Yeah. And so if they got too filled up too, which is interesting, later in in a comment, if it started getting a little too full, they would send the people to different places. Of course. Yeah. So it's almost like, so is this like privately run? (laughs) (laughs) Hold up. I work in public schools. I know how this works. Um, So they would ship them off elsewhere. Um, Now, they did kind of build on here and there, but obviously John Haviland, the person who created Eastern State or, you know, penitentiary, he didn't like the idea of building on because you wanted to have that, you know, connection to God, the natural light that came through. The more you build on, the more you lose that. Mm -hmm. And that's why they kind of spread out all these different buildings, because they want to make sure that light was still allowed to come into all these different places. Um, So I can say that they did use different architects to make sure it would work. They had to keep building it in the 1900s to accommodate 1,000 patients. They did have male and female dormitories, just like you heard from Penhurst. There were physician quarters and residences for married employees. So they could live there. The employees could live on the city on the hill, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, in in a way. Yeah, in a way. Um, But there were also tunnels that connected the buildings, and they also served as conduits for steam and electric. So just like you saw Penhurst, we have the tunnel system. Yeah. Going back to your whole Orwell cold opening quote there, uh, this, it definitely sounds on paper like they're trying to build a utopia, too. This Mm -hmm. little uh, self-sufficient community where everything is run and everyone pitches in and helps each other out. And again, on paper, utopias are <laughs> wonderful little ideas. But as we know, utopia is a Greek word that has a double meaning. Perfect place and no place. Uh-huh. It's impossible. 
Um, now, in the 30s and 40s, uh, 1930s and 40s, the hospital did continue to grow, um, but it was able to avoid expansion, as I mentioned, because it would parole their patients. So they were able to come and go. So again, different from Panhurst, who were kind of like kept there. So again, I do want to say like on paper, it sounds great. Mm -hmm. And of course, they had patients transferred to other hospitals. I find that to be intriguing. I'd like to know why they were being sent elsewhere. Who and and where are they being sent? To Penhurst? Now there were many different asylums in the area, but again, why would you feel the need to transfer mm, them? Penhurst wouldn't have been terribly far away either. I know. Because it's the halfway point. It's, well, I guess a little more than halfway to fill. Well, and there from was Norristown Asylum, and actually that Norristown just closed in 2017. I believe, or 18. It just closed a couple oh, wow. of years ago. Didn't yeah. know that. Well, that was one of our last ones that were open, and that's been a big... Con we'll get to that second part of the show. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, but anyway, the 1940s, you actually had over 3,000 patients, and by the 60s and 70s, we actually had treatments that changed um, for mental illness, too. So you see, start seeing some of the negativity kind of come in, mm -hmm. which they kind of cut out of here. Um, but again, by the 40s, we have 3,000-plus patients. And what you're forgetting is 1940s was also World War II. A lot of the staff were actually sent overseas to fight. So we have this huge influx of patients and, like, no one to work there. And so that's where I would find this intriguing because, again, the article you're looking at paints a pretty picture, but was it actually pretty? Yeah. So I keep referencing this article. It is called The City on the Hill. Um, it's wonderful. It sounds nice. It's and a pretty short article, too. It's yeah. an easy read. The title of it's The Peak of State Care. I love that. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure what you picked up on this article. So what did you see when you were looking over? What kind of stuck out to you? <laughs> well, nothing that really helps us in terms of this podcast. But I really want to know. Uh, so in terms of the shops they had on campus... <laughs> That uh, the shops made, quote, indestructible blankets. I know I have questions. <laughs> I, need, <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> I, wanna, I thought about looking it up to be like, what is an indestructible blanket? Like, hmm. I'm just picturing the elven cloaks from Lord of the Rings right now. <laughs> See, I was imagining them crocheting like plastic bags. You know, like the, you make those mats and stuff. Oh. <laughs> I was like, is that the indestructible blanket? Because I can light it on fire. <laughs> or what about the thermal metal blankets, you know? Ooh, or a really thin rubber blanket? I don't mm. know. <laughs> so what else did you see that you found interesting? So yeah, I really... I found it interesting how there's, like, again, the parole system there. And it says, uh, uh, by 1946, there are 2,441 patients and another 437 on parole who could come mm -hmm. and go as, you know, they needed or, I guess, come for just their appointments. Yep. Uh, like a traditional hospital is these days. But they also had a tuberculosis ward, a power plant on site. Right? That's so cool. Uh, just wild, absolutely wild, the things they had on this campus here. What made me really sad, though, is if you um, look at the bottom of the article, it says, because of World War II, mm -hmm. the male staff was sent off, that caused a 50% shortage of attendance, which meant that there was, like, one nurse to 166 yeah. patients. And so you're t there have to be stories, then, of abuse or neglect. Neglect, yeah. But it is nowhere in the information at yeah. all. like... Those kind of numbers, there's got to be some kind of neglect. Maybe not willful abuse, but definitely some kind of neglect. And so in that same article, you mentioned, you know, the whole, like, cool stuff. I want to say it, 
I would have loved to have gone there to see it in action because it says here, life at the hospital during the early 20th century was a community affair. The hospital had indeed become a small city. Patients worked all over the hospital yeah. as part of their occupational therapy. Again, remember for Penhurst, they said they liked it because they had jobs there, right? Yeah, so they'd like shovel sidewalks, yeah, and they would be working in the farm. During the warm months, they would care for the ground, mowing grass and tending the flower beds. Winter months, they would shovel snow from the walkways. It says they worked on the farm, which supplied the hospital with all the food it needed, everything from meat, dairy, fruits, and vegetables. The central kitchen stored and prepared all the meals for the patients and staff. There was also broom making and chair caning, which I find <laughs> fascinating. It took place in the basement of the chapel, and there was a toy factory established in the basement of the Mill Chronic building. And they also had small shops and other buildings around the hospital where they produced mattresses, pillows, awnings, window shades, and you mentioned the indestructible blankets. Can I have questions? <laughs> in 1926, there was a tailor shop that was established to produce suits, pants, and coats. So they had their own clothing being made there. The practice of patients working at the hospital was called occupational therapy. The work was meant to keep an excited mind busy, which good. You're teaching someone what to do. They're not bored anymore. Yeah. And it says most of the items that were made at the hospital were used at the hospital. And if there was an excess, it was sold at local markets and the money went back into the hospital budget. So again, like it's so cool on paper. Yeah. And it's what you would hope it's going to be. That's what a life skills class should be. Right. But the previous paragraph is what I want to point out. So it's like mm -hmm. the first paragraph mm -hmm. of this article. you got to think about it. And this is where I went down my wormhole. So it's, <laughs> it said, For the last 100 years, the primary method of treatment for patients has been plenty of fresh air, good food, and rest. At the turn of the 20th century, new methods of treatment were starting to be used. One of the most popular treatments was hydrotherapy. This new method of treatment would be used until the 1950s. There were several different types of hydrotherapy treatments used at Harrisburg. One method was to wrap a patient from head to toe in wet packs or wet sheets, which um, I'll explain what that is later. Mm -hmm. Patients would lay on a table wrapped tightly in the sheets for long periods of time. The idea behind this treatment was to calm and restrain an anxious or excited patient. Some cases of abuse using this treatment were reported in other Pennsylvania hospitals, but never at Harrisburg. Other methods of hydrotherapy treatment were rain baths, uh, colonic irrigation, which you can guess what that is, and fully submerged baths in large tubs. Hydrotherapy was likely used to some degree in most of the patient buildings, but the largest hydrotherapy facility was located in the basement of the female psychotic, a psychopathic building. Now, hydrotherapy, again, sounds wonderful on paper. Yeah, or on a hot summer day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so my, my question for you is, what do you think hydrotherapy, how could you imagine it being used, PJ? I mean, I definitely again me on a hot summer day i would love some wet sheets just thrown on top of me <laughs> but i could easily see this happening in a cold basement where you're tied down to a bed and these things what? are put on top of you or wrapped around you mm -hmm. now you're talking about the the wrapping. almost like an ice bap bath bath yes yeah. so bap yes an ice bap a nice bap you know sometimes sometimes you just need a good old ice <laughs> sometimes bath sometimes you need it um so um, it's interesting to read this because then I was like, well, I got to do research because if there's anything here, it's going to be that because it was never used at Harrisburg. Yeah, no, nope, no. Nope. 
Um, so I actually went on to Psychology Today because, of course, they are Psychology Today. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see, like, how hydrotherapy had grown um, from the from its very beginning childlike birth to its use in the 20s through 40s. Mm-hmm. And so during the Renaissance, so we're talking the 1580s, so Shakespearean times, the Flemish physician Jean-Baptiste von Helmont, not kidding, that's his name, he created He probably water. should have needed to clear his throat a lot. He's <laughs> Flemish. Oh, boy. Anyway, he reintroduced the idea of water therapy, but that wasn't when it was actually created. Water has always been used throughout the ages, as we know. Mm-hmm. But he said, if you fully immerse someone who is mad, crazy, yep. it's going to kill the mad idea in their brain. Oh, of course. Yes. And if you fully immerse them in cold water to the point of near death, it will get rid of all those problems and they will get rid of their derangement. I wonder if, like, someone had a virus, you know, some kind of bacteria in their brain, and he one time just happened to kill it by getting it cold enough. And then he's like, oh, this will work every time. No, I look at it as, you know, someone's so cold, you toss them in an icy lake, and they're frozen pretty much. I look, I fixed them. They're no longer <laughs> freaking out like that. That's what they they're were quiet. doing. They're yeah, quiet. It worked. No, it's not that they're like hypothermic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so that was the beginning. It was the idea of like ice baths, as you mentioned, or an ice bath, as you put it. Yes. Um. So that was the idea. But, you know, killing your patients is not good for business. What? So, I know, right? Hmm. So... By mid-century, what happened is they took the idea of the cold water bath and they brought them to a silence, but they kind of kept it in a closed location so they wouldn't freeze a person to death. The two... Just nearly. Just near death, so they would calm down. Yes, exactly. It's scientific. Come on, man. It's proven to work. (laughs) Von... The Jean Baptiste who has to clean his throat out uh, got it right. <laughs> but so the two types that they actually used the most were a douche, so a shower. So you're putting a culture. They called it here rain baths Ooh. in the document. Yes, cold rain coming. Imagine you're just outside on a nice cold rainy day. Nobody wants to be outside on a cold rainy day. Maybe a warm rainy yeah, day in July. Warm rainy day, absolutely. It's fun, yeah. So, yes, a constant douche, a constant shower, or a constant torrent of water that was cold or hot back and forth. Because they believed cool water that would also be a little bit heated could arouse the melancholic, okay? But a complete cold bath would calm your nerves, okay? Right. So they could (laughs) perform hydrotherapy in public ponds, in fountains, in the sea, obviously, which invites public viewing. So you have someone who's going crazy in their minds, or maybe he's having like a schizophrenic break, toss them in that nice cold pond. They stopped complaining. Look, I fixed them. Yeah. Yes. So that's literally how it started. Um, So later then you see it change with um, ideas of cold water versus hot water. Who doesn't love taking a hot bath, right? So like we still use that today, like get a hot shower to calm down or to get rid of a headache. You know, we mentioned before, mm-hmm. like you, I mentioned last week, you only feel good when you're sick, when you're under a hot shower, because <laughs> right? you feel clean and your brain's working again. So they did start using warm baths and whatnot. They started kind of like tinkering with the idea of this, but I would assume that this was definitely abused because later in my research, 
Dr. Benjamin Rush pops up. And you may not know who he is, but he was the doctor of his day. He was a product of the American Revolution. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Like, this is an American through and through. He is also the doctor that during the epidemic, um, the yellow fever epidemic in yep. Philadelphia in 1793, he was one walking around cutting everyone and making them bleed to death. Lovely. Yeah. And he really believed that his, his uh, lancing, his bleeding therapy was saving lives. Okay. So I don't have much love for Dr. Rush. Um, and anyway, but in the case of this, he also was involved with hydrotherapy. So now I absolutely hate the idea of it. Now, again, we... We love the idea of getting a hot shower. We love the idea of getting, taking a hot bath to mm -hmm. calm down. That will work to calm someone or to make you feel happy again if you're melancholic. Definitely. Got it. Okay? Like, that. I understand that. Yep. But I love this quote from Dr. Rush because it just, to me, showcases the kind of person he was. He said... I have contrived a chair and introduced it to our Pennsylvania hospital to assist in curing madness. It binds and confines every part of the body. By keeping the trunk erect, it lessens the impetus of blood toward the brain. By preventing the muscles from acting, it reduces the force and frequency of the pulse, and by the position of the head and feet, favors the easy application of cold water or ice to the former and water, warm water to the latter. Its effects have been truly delightful to me. That freaks wow. me out. <laughs> it acts as a sedative to the tongue and temper as well as to the blood vessels. In 24, 12, 6, and in some cases in four hours, the most refractory patients have been composed. I have called it a capital T tranquilizer. So Dr. Rush invents the tranquilizer chair, which is used to aid in hydrotherapy. And again, 24, 12, 6, and in some cases, four hours. They could be strapped, this puppy, for 24, 24 hours. hours. Yeah. So again, he, and he mentions it to Pennsylvania because he was one of our founding fathers. So he's here in PA offering this. By the way, it's mentioned a little bit in that article. Okay. Um, another way to do hydrotherapy was to surprise push someone into frigid water to help shock them back into sanity. Think fast. <laughs> yep. Um, so, Jeez. yeah, one person describes it as the sufferer came down the corridors to the ground floor and arrived in a square vaulted room in which a pool had been constructed. He was pushed over backwards into the water. Okay. So again, I am not saying that the state hospital used this. However, I'm going to assume they used some of these methods. Especially yeah. if this was such a big practice of the time, they would want to be, quote, keeping with the times. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, you're not supposed to coerce your patients into the bath or shower or, or push them into it. <laughs> but sometimes they had to. Sometimes they had to. Okay. So that is just one. Um, that's from Psychology Today. But because that was current i wanted to go and find the actual discussion of hydrotherapy in a mental hospital by a person using it at this time period yeah so i actually found 
Hubbard's discussion of this. Um, L.D. Hubbard, he was a well-known doctor in the 1920s. Okay. So I wanted to find his discussion of it um, as he was using it at this time period. Now, he said the most commonly used forms of hydrotherapy were packs, showers, needle sprays, scotch douches, sits baths, and continuous baths. So the packs are what you've heard. You know, they're wrapping someone up with cold mm -hmm. or, or warm, wet um, stuff. Sits baths we've heard before because they still exist, right? You sit in it. Mm -hmm. um, showers, we know. Needle spray sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds painful. I had to research Scott douche because I was like, what's that? Um, it's when you get tossed hot water, then cold water, hot water, then cold water, three times in a row, hot, then cold, hot, then cold, hot, then cold, back and forth, because it surprises your nervous system into shock because it's hot, cold, hot, cold. And it's like hot, hot yeah. water, cold, cold water. Yeah. So I, wow, no thank you. Hmm. The continuous bath sounds great, but doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the idea from him was the discussion from Germany because in the hospitals in Germany, remember, they came back from Germany with all these ideas, right? We discussed that in past weeks. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Germans had this idea of the continuous bath that could last for days or weeks at a time, sleeping and eating in the bathtub. Oof. Yes. Now, in other hospitals, it was limited to one or two hours each day. I could deal with that more than weeks. But the idea was the water was warmed on purpose, so it puts you into a nice, calm, restful kind of relaxation. Mm -hmm. It sounds wonderful until the prolonged <laughs> force into the bathtub. It's always, sounds great, but... But, yeah. Um, so he describes it this way. So he says, the continuous bath is a form of treatment not so far removed from the habits of everyday life. The tub is specially constructed so that there is a steady inflow and outflow of water, the temperature of which is regulated before it enters the tub. A canvas hammock is arranged on a metal frame, so that sounds good, mm -hmm. in the tub so that the patient may be comfortably supported lying at full length with his head on a rubber pillow. The water covers the body up to the chin and is kept at a temperature of 97 to 99 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, or approximately the temperature of your body. Yep. Um, then a sheet is laid loosely over the patient, but no effort is made to restrain his movements so that he may relax, stretch, and rest himself in the most comfortable position. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from the weakness at a time. But he did say it's wonderful because you don't have to worry then about uh, ab abrasions. It prevents abrasions from mm -hmm. being strapped down. And it says here, and bed sores so greatly to be feared and violently excited or bedfast patients are not going to happen. Yep. So, again, it sounds great in theory. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> but I just imagine, like, you're you're in water up to your chin, right? Who's feeding you? Because <laughs> it's... <laughs> and obviously, you have to use the Open bathroom. Open wide for the birdie. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the choo-choo train. Oh, gosh. We have to make a joke because otherwise we're sad, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. You got to make a joke or else. So, again... The hydrotherapy, apart from the, the colon one where they're giving you basically an enema to make you feel better, that is like the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so that, that's not supposed to be as bad, but it gets more insidious because that article, if we go back to it, because I'm going to, it says later in it, in 1921, the name of the hospital was changed to the Harrisburg State Hospital. 
Also that year, the Board of Public Charities was abolished and the Department of Public Welfare was created to administer all state hospitals. So you lose the, the Dorothea Dix kind of person mm-hmm. who was fighting for social reform and you bring in the Department of Welfare, which we discussed during our Pennhurst. Oh, yeah. Where there is no need to give them education and it's whatever. Yep. Yep. All right. So it says here we have a we have a, a new person take over as superintendent, and in 1934, some new radical patient treatments were introduced. These included several methods of shock treatment as well as surgical procedure. Yay! Can you guess what the surgical procedures were? Hmm. Lobotomies. They never used the word, but I mean, what else could it be? <laughs> so again, it's amazing how when you're in charge of the narrative, how you can paint a pretty picture. Yeah. You just leave out key words. <laughs> Lobotomy. Um, surgical procedures. But they continue by saying it this way. These new treatments were considered by many physicians in the United States and Europe to be breakthroughs. They were. (laughs) I know. In the treatment of mentalness, they weren't great breakthroughs. Um, Harrisburg was the first Pennsylvania State Hospital to use insulin and electroshock therapy. And, And we'll discuss insulin shock therapy. Have you ever heard of that? I can assume it's putting people in the diabetic comas. Who would have thought? <laughs> it's amazing. But you wouldn't get it from this. It sounds so happy. Um, in June of 1939, the hospital hosted the Pennsylvania Medical Society. Physicians from all over the state visited the hospital, and a large display with exhibits and demonstrations was set up in the chapel. Yep. Yes. But it sounds wonderful because, well, it's in the church section. It has to be good. Conditions in the hospital were crowded, but still good. Literally, it's, that's there. <laughs> Rather than construct... New- <laughs> I'm not, again, like you're in charge of the narrative. Gosh. Rather than construct numerous new buildings to fight overcrowding, as was done at most other state hospitals, it was decided to transfer patients to other hospitals whenever possible and to increase the use of the parole system. So, yeah, I love that sentence because, you know, I'm an English teacher, so you need to analyze it's like, yes, conditions were terrible, but they were still good. But rather than construct numerous new buildings to fight the overcrowding, we just shipped them to those overcrowded yeah. state hospitals. Like, what? Hold on. So we know what electroshock therapy is. We discussed it at length with Penhurst. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're putting on exhibits, I'm going to assume that people were hurt. Who wants to have electroshock therapy? Yeah. Not me. Now, I'm... Nowadays, the new version of EST is fine. You know? Yeah, lower voltages and yes. everything. Uh, my question is, and I would love to go back in time to figure this out, it, you know, to sit in one of these board meetings or whatever and to see if these treatments were something where they knew it was awful, but they're like, what other options do we have? Like, we got to try something for these people. Or is it more like, well, no one cares about these people, so let's see what happens when we put them under this Science. condition. Yeah. So I would love to know what you know what the uh, the true intentions behind these uh, ex- experiments or procedures were. And I think it was probably like a combination, right? You yeah, know? probably. I hold that Doctor Benjamin Rush was like one of America's first sociopaths. I really believe that. <laughs> 
Based on like the way I was he, expecting this to go a different way. <laughs> based on the way that he worded things, especially like during the the epidemic, because I've read so much because of teaching the uh you know fever seventeen ninety three to my students, just the way he words things, it freak and like you saw there, it freaks me out. Like how yeah. it's wonderful years. Oh yeah, yeah, the way he's like so excited about yes about the results of this. And but he, he was even quoted saying like there were some people that I took like quarts of blood from i loved it mm-hmm. all the blood i was helping them no honey you're a vampire knock it off <laughs> so i just i feel like it was a combination where they saw oh if i knock someone in the creek and it's cold they stop screaming that worked all right let's try it again and again yeah. like i could see like them thinking it's working in the short term but it's not really helping them yeah but i, I would love to know if they thought it was you know or if they're like well, it worked, so let's just keep doing it. You know, well, they and hydrotherapy. I, I would love to know that. If you think about like the Scandinavian countries, they had bathhouses. Now they are very cleanly because the bathhouse is a place mm-hmm. to not just clean but also to socialize. It as part of your culture. Yeah. So again, like it's not a bad idea. It's just how you use it. And even we have a uh, what are they called the uh, the saltwater spas where yep. you you know float you know you float Fl- on the water floating. art of floating and things like that where. We spas yeah the water is heated to your body temperature so you don't sensory deprivation tank that's what it's called where you know you don't feel the water because it's the same temperature as your skin so you literally just don't feel it when it touches your skin uh and you know you just sit in a tub for a half hour and well and you know you can put babies in bathtubs like well no in a good way but <laughs> yeah for, for not our children but a lot of babies enjoy tubbies because <laughs> it relaxes them you know because it's so womb-like especially when they're newborns all of our children hated their newborn oh, baths God, yeah. <laughs> But I hear that most babies like it. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I, I get the idea behind it, like that kind of going back to the womb. But I know it was not being used the way they were saying no, it here. No, no, not way. at all. Um, especially with the idea of overcrowding. Again, it seemed like a great idea initially, you know, this powerhouse on a hill. But I just, they're, and I'm st- sorry. Yeah, and stuck in, like, going back to the tubs, like stuck in them for all that time. Would, that that alone would be maddening, you know? And if Dr. Benjamin Rush created the tranquilizer chair, you'd know they were Oof. using it here because it's from Pennsylvania, for crying aloud. Why would yeah. you be using that? Yeah. Um, so let's go to insulin shock therapy. Oh, can, can we? Do we have to? Yes, we do. Okay. Um, it's also called insulin coma therapy. Hmm. So you weren't wrong. They realized that it was a great form of psychiatric, you know, treatment. Yeah. Because if you give enough, they could produce daily comas, which means you fall asleep and you're not making noises. All right. We fixed it. However, <laughs> um, not a fun way. Now, in the 1930s or 40s and 50s, it was the main treatment for schizophrenics. Fun fact. Yep. Yep. Well, again, like, they're not moving. They're quiet. We fixed it. Yep. Um, so what's, what's kind of horrible about this is just how the technique was worked. So um, th- this is the description I'm just kind of pulling. The daily insulin dose was gradually increased. You would start off with about 100 to 150 units of insulin, and you would give that to them until the coma was produced. And then at wow. that point, they would level the dose out. So that way you'd stay in the coma, but they weren't, like, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. however your body would kind of get used to it so occasionally doses of up to 450 units were used yep after about 50 or 60 comas were put onto the um, patients or possibly earlier if the psychiatrist decided 
That meant that your maximum benefits had been received. 50 or 60 comas, and then you finally were stopped from doing it anymore. People were, you actually can find, some people suffered this treatment for up to two years. Yeah. Now, when it came to insulin injections and the coma, it wasn't just, you know, knocking them out. They obviously suffered things like decreased blood glucose, who would have thought, (laughs) flushing and pallor, and of course, perspiration from sweating from it because of that. Lots of salvation in your mouth, feeling, feeling even thirsty for some people. Obviously, you could feel really tired. You could feel really restless from being like forced in that that like like super kind of coma. Mm-hmm. But, but each coma would last up for about an hour at least, and it would be terminated by intravenous glucose or via nasogastric tube to wake you back up. But seizures would occur before or during the coma, which meant that even though you were knocked out, you were tossing, rolling, moaning, twitching, convulsing, spasming, thrashing, you name it. Yeah, because that's totally good for your brain. Yep. But (laughs) some psychiatrists regarded those seizures as therapeutic. They were fixing, it was almost like electro- yeah. shock therapy it was fixing your brain and the body was rebooting itself exactly yes so imagine that's what they went through so you cannot tell me that this place whatever its name is because we changed the name obviously harrisburg state mm-hmm. is fine you cannot tell me that it is a picture peak of state care if they're using insulin shock therapy yeah because that is abuse I don't care who you are. Yeah. Um, so it does say here that um, few psychiatrists did say that there were success rates for it. However, there were lots of um, aftershocks from t- uh, doing this insulin con- like treatment, you know. Uh, biggest thing was patients became very, very grossly obese because of all the insulin shock therapy. Um, they also um, had brain damage. Um, they would also have um, death, of course. So those are different things that would come from going through this therapeutic improvement help. Hmm. Yeah. So that was being done there as well. So with that being said, I don't believe this article that it was just a picture perfect place to be. I just don't. I can't. Yeah. They do mention that um, it, did, it did need expansion. Of course, it did mention that there was one nurse, 166 patients at one point, because only because of World War II. If it hadn't been for that, it would have been fine. Right. That, that's kind of like the, the idea you get there was it would have been fine if it wasn't for that pesky World War II, I guess. Um, so my question is now, how do you feel about this place currently? Uh, I mean, I agree with you 100% that there. To be a state hospital, a state hospital, and to be such a big one, they had to have been using the most mainstream and uh, newest ty- um, types of procedures, and uh, even probably even the experimental ones. You know, the ones that are uh, still low on research, and they're you know they're investing into it. I strongly believe that, uh, given by the, uh, you know, the founding fathers of this place and just all the people involved in it and the way they kind of tiptoe around it 
with it really bothers me with surgical procedures and things uh, Lobo- lobotomies do you mean lobotomies uh, no <laughs> of course not <laughs> so yeah i definitely think that there were some you know nasty things going on here and then i i i, I just feel like after penhurst wouldn't you just make it known what happened there it bothers me the idea that they're they're obviously hiding something. Like yeah, I, I hate to be mm. like, oh, they're hiding stuff. I don't want to be that person, but just the wording showcases that they're hiding something. And why is there nothing that I can find on the patients really? Yeah. Why was it because Penhurst was just exploded? Like you know, it was just this big expose, and then like all this litigation. Is that why? I think it, it very well could have been that they just took, dominated the press and the media and everything. And so everyone else just silently shut down in the background. And uh... Guys, we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> or could it be that they did send the worse off patients elsewhere and they kept what they wanted? Yeah. I hate that it's very it that likely. way. But you have this, like, you know, this powerhouse on a hill. Can you be picky and choosy? Because initially, you did have to pay a weekly fee to be there. It was like about two, two fifty a week to live at this place, and then later it became pay what you can, you mm-hmm. know, because it became uh, part of the welfare system. Um, but because they were getting money and they were able to like you know do certain things, and of course they had started with the progressive idea of rehabilitating people so they could do things and work and you know make money. So then you wonder are they actually enjoying their time there? Or do you have, as like Laura and Ray and we had mentioned last time, do you basically have like a slave labor force? Yeah. I don't want to say that because you're living in a, in a place, almost like a commune that people get you, they understand you and you have a job. It's very collectivism. It's very much that kind of like Ayn Rand idea. But again, if you don't know any other alternative, what are you putting up with to live there and be accepted? Are mm-hmm. you having insulin shock therapy? Are you having electric? Are you being shoved into a nice vat of cold water and a tranquilizer <laughs> chair? Like what is happening to you? And the fact that we don't have, I, I couldn't get that information, but they did, you know, bring in the people in 1930s to showcase the beauty of this place and the chapel for crying out loud of all places. Yeah. I just, I find it very fishy. So, and it's no surprise in this place actually is very much haunted, which is why we're discussing this, of course, um, because it's very similar in the way to Penhurst. A lot of negative energy in this place. Um, The discussion of what's actually happening there. So with that, we're going to stop and we're going to do Kyle's creepy thoughts. And we're going to come back and discuss that and discuss the current and the future, I would say, of mental health care in this country, but especially in Pennsylvania. I thought it would be a good idea if we turned some the the girl. I thought it would be be a good idea if we. I thought I thought it would be a good idea. I thought I thought it would be a good idea. Good idea. And the the girl from Ringu. This is bad. This is really bad. It's a Ouija. When the director Harold Ramis was interviewed about the movie Groundhog Day, and he was asked about how long that Bill Murray's character, Phil Connors, is stuck reliving the same day over and over again, he said that he believed it was for the equivalent of 10,000 years. Now, in the final cut, people have argued it's probably somewhere between 10 years and 34 years, depending upon what math you use. But let's think about that 10,000 years, though. That's how long Harold Ramis thought that it would take a character like Phil Connors 
to actually really truly change? What if that's what being a ghost in a residual haunting is like? Trapped, living the same day, every day, just trying to get it right for 10,000 years, hoping that you find some magic combination of actions and events that lets you out of the loop so that you can move on. That sounds like, like hell to me, or at least purgatory. Make me a doctor's appointment because that creepy thought is off the charts. I has all the boogers. I has all the boogers. I love that. I want to just say really fast that I am cranky that I was not asked to do Shanna's shenanigans as a regular on Liminal Unlimited. Just say. But we have been invited onto the show. <sighs> Fine. Anywho. Um, so what are your thoughts on his comment there? Um, I've heard about the whole 10,000 years thing mm -hmm. uh, for Groundhog Day because, like, he becomes fluent in at least one language that you see in the movie. He becomes a master pianist. He knows everything that's happening in the entire town down to the second. <laughs> so that's like memorizing your favorite song if your song was 24 hours long and everywhere you know uh and knowing every beat that's going to happen uh so yeah he's definitely been there for a long time longer than like they I'd make you crazy. think yeah which is why he tries to kill himself repeatedly in that yeah. movie uh so yeah that would be that would be the worst i couldn't imagine but it took him ten thousand years to figure out how to get the day right like <laughs> And the and all he had to do was just not be a jerk for a day. <laughs> well, it's funny because it it harkens back to our discussion about like you know reincarnation. You know, they're not that like we believe in that, but my grandmother had been said like you know what if mm. God made you come back to Earth because you didn't get it quite right. Yeah. And I was listening to this week's podcast for Kyle and Jen. They're talking about near death experiences actually, and uh, the idea like are you are you being sent back because people who have these death experiences some of them say they've been with a higher power or they've seen mm -hmm. the light, that kind of thing. And so are you making the choice to come back or were you told it's not your time, you got to fix it? Yeah. So did it take him 10,000 tries? Like <laughs> how many times do you stand in front of a deity who says, you know what, you still didn't get it? Or, you know, I just, it's interesting because now that I've been listening more to your Liminal Unlimited podcast, the more I'm like, oh, so what if it really was that long? Because again, when mm -hmm. you're in that near-death experience kind of a scenario, uh, a second feels so much longer, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I just, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's fascinating to me. It really is. Yeah. So thank you, Kyle. You make us think a little bit more, and I still think more ghostly and spiritual versus, you know, um, it being a liminal space. And I've been listening to your most recent podcast um, episode, and I want to say, out-of-body experiences, I'm calling them ghosts. I don't care. All right. You and I had that story, you know, way back in the day about nursing homes. And that one lady, they see her like walking through the wall to her husband's room. And you find out that they had um, both been in an accident and she had passed over. But she was checking on her husband who was still alive. Mm -hmm. And so you can't tell me that I wasn't <laughs> a ghost. All right. Or someone who like sees that they are dead and they kind of come back. I think it's their soul. I think it's a ghost. Which goes right into part two. The so, spookies. Let me tell you the spookenings that are happening here. Let's hear it. It's the same thing pretty much as Penhurst. So what do you think happens here? Strange moanings and screams and... Uh, Holy cow. Yeah. 
seeing uh, shadowy images, I'm what? sure. You're reading my mind. Yeah. It's amazing. Keep going. Fine. I also have paper right here. I have <laughs> no, don't look... read that. That's cheating. Okay. Well, I didn't look at it yet, actually. Uh, but you're right. So you do hear a lot of like noises, a lot of screams, too. Mm. So again, if it was a happy place, dot, dot, dot. Well, it could just be residual energy, too, because, you know, people with... Uh, some types of disabilities yeah, can scream. Well, so, and even like autism, you know, if you if you get mm -hmm. too stimulated, you can scream. Yeah. I give you that. Yeah. But I don't know, like... Depending on what the scream sounds yeah. like, too. As a teacher of 15 years now, like, there's an autistic scream, there's, you know, an emotional disturbance scream. And then there's a scream in pain. Yeah. So, yes. you know. But, yeah, you'll hear noises, um, moans. Shadow figures are completely normal to mm -hmm. see. Um, they have seen full-bodied apparitions, which I find fascinating. You also can hear footsteps all over, which um, I like to hear about that, too. Yeah. But the most haunted places, no surprise, are the basement, which mm -hmm. is where that hydrotherapy was happening, mm. just saying. The morgue, again, not surprising, dead people. And the tunnels underneath. And again, the tunnels were there to connect the different buildings, but also to kind of bring in like the heating and stuff, as it said in the That's how it was with Penhurst, yeah. too. It was, all, it was all about heating ventilation. So I'm just kind of like, why the tunnels? What's happening down there? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, if it was a concourse to get from one building to the next building, okay. Like, it's just busy, and so you have that residual haunting, maybe. But what is the most fascinating to me is blood-like stains are sometimes found on the floor of the exam room in the morgue. That's wild. That's crazy. It just shows up. Even today, that will happen. Yeah. And there's also poltergeist activity happening all throughout the property. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, kind of screams our house. The idea that like, yeah. you know, if you have such negative energy, it's going to bring something like that in. Because you know? yeah. poltergeists just don't show up. Like, hey, guys, I'm here for the party. They show up because of the negativity. Yeah. Well, yeah. I assume, anyway. If it's an intel intelligent, it, it shows intelligence behind the haunt. Yeah. It, you know, it's communicating. It's interacting with the world. Yeah. Where residual haunts, they just kind of go through the motions. They ignore things around them. Uh, whether it's, you know, you put in a new wall or whatever, you know, and they'll just walk right through it. But an intelligent haunting will see things and move them and, and interact with them. And things have been moved, too. And they're yeah. like, I didn't put that there. Yeah. So that's why poltergeists are such a completely different kind of haunting. And we didn't and much hear, scarier. We didn't really hear much about poltergeists. Well, there was a couple, like, you know, the, the man in the basement. The Mayflower building has creepy stuff. A lot yeah. of poltergeist activity. Yeah. A lot. So to see that again, like, but here, you didn't see a lot of terrible things happening in these articles, but why else would you have poltergeist-like activity? And why would there be blood-like stains? Like, I just... that That's concerning. That's a, yeah. <laughs> that's a little worrisome. So you can paint me a picture with your words, government officials, but there's more to the story. There, there mm -hmm. has to be, in my opinion. Yeah. So to me, like, not even a question, this place has to be haunted, just like Penhurst. When there's so much negativity happening, when there's so much evil, even if it was not as bad as Penhurst, there's still mm -hmm. stuff happening. So you're going to have ghost-like activity. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I 100% agree that, uh, you know, there's stuff going on here. There's bad energy here. Uh, a lot of 
ghost hunting TV shows, which everyone knows by now. <laughs> I don't hold a lot of stake in those. Yeah. Uh, it's entertainment flat out. Yep. <laughs> but, um, you know, the fact that they still spend money to send camera crews there and things like that means that it's worth checking out at the very least. And this building is still being used today. It's not being used as an insane asylum. Mm -hmm. It's being used by different agencies to store stuff there. So these buildings are still in decent repair because mm -hmm. we have agencies actually working out of them. So unlike Penhurst, that's just like crumbling to the ground or possibly being bulldozed over to turn it into just more parking Not possibly. Lots. That's happening. Yes. I said possibly, to be polite. <laughs> but just so they can have more parking spots for their terrible stuff. They're, you know, keeping track of this building. They're taking care mm -hmm. of it and they're using it. So, again, I don't want to paint a nasty picture for this place without having been there. Yeah. Um, but I had been reading and there is, um, or there was, I should say, um, a cemetery on the property and it was moved, you know. Mm -hmm. So, like, there is even that going on where you have that disturbance of the remains of people. Yeah. But I feel that they did the best that they could. Yeah. If you want to see the interior of this place, uh, the movie Girl Interrupted was mm -hmm. filmed there with Angelina Jolie. Uh, I remember seeing it a long time ago. I don't remember anything about it, except I liked it. I remember... That's the pen when she tries to stab it in her, her neck, right? I believe so, yeah. And she goes, you cut one more step and I'll stab it in my order. And it's Whoopi Goldberg, who's the nurse, right? I think so. And she goes, your aorta's in your chest. Click, click. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. The I remember, yeah. That's a good, that's a good movie. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you want to see, like, a really interesting movie and also see the interior of this place, because uh, it was up and running. Like, it was an, a running functional asylum at this yep. point when they filmed the movie. So that's um, something you could do to see how it looked on the... I kind of want to, because, again, I haven't seen this movie in ages. Let's so. just watch it. It's yeah. fun. It's for science. It's for research. <laughs> Um, so, no, but again, you can see now they did change a little bit of it just so they could, you know, make it look, look more institutionalized, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of natural light there, which is really good because again, that was the idea of this place was to have that kind of closeness to nature. And if I didn't mention fun fact, the farm that they had was a 130 acre farm. I saw that. Isn't yeah. That 53 crazy? hectares. That's Huge. Insane. So, so for some of these ghosts, we mentioned before, because you have these people who kept saying, I want to go back. I miss Penhurst, you know, because they, maybe they're in the good wards. Maybe some of these shadow apparitions that are there, because they see shadows in all the different buildings. What if some of these are the people who have come back because it was the best time in their life? If they were making brooms and cane <laughs> chairs and... Or if they're uh, tethered to it because it was a horrible time in their oh life. Oh, boy, you know, yeah. Horrors. Or they're too. making indestructible blankets, whatever the case may be. Whatever that is. <laughs> Still have questions. Like, maybe they're there in their afterlife because it was a place that was calming for them. But most notoriously, they could be back there, too, as, like, maybe a punishment or they're stuck there now in the afterlife because yeah. they can't they can't leave yeah something that was uh that's striking to me is this quote from dr dennis downey a professor at um a professor of history from millersville university and he said quote if you have five thousand people or six thousand people in the same institutional setting how can you simply manage to give adequate care provided to be adequate this word again oh, oh i'm screwed up that quote so how you simply manage to give adequate care proved to be impossible 
Ergo, the controversies of the late 20th century, bad things happened. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah. But again, again, the word adequate, like where's Laura mm-hmm. to repeat that word a billion Yeah, times. not even great care or good care, just adequate care. And I think that's like, if we go just looking at that quote too, I don't want to let our listeners down because there isn't, this isn't as juicy as Penhurst, but that's what concerns me is that there's the lack of juice. Mm-hmm. What the heck happened here? Yeah. You know, because we know that our house was haunted because of what happened around on the land around the well. We know that Laura's house is haunted for certain reasons. There, There is some reason usually for a haunting, mm-hmm. right? Or, or like for that, that residual negative energy, whatever the case may be. Could it be a positive haunting? Sure, sure, sure. But mostly it's negative. Is there a Casper experience here? I would like a Casper experience one time in my life. <laughs> Not here. Yeah, um, no, no, no. We're good. No more here. <laughs> But, like, you have all this happening. What happened? And why is the dialogue being controlled to the point where I was doing, I was going down some pretty dark tunnels here. I was falling the white (laughs) rabbit. But it's all hush-hush. It's all quiet. And a lot of, there's, like, only one article that even mentioned the possibility of a patient saying they hated uh, Harrisburg State Hospital. But it's the Inquirer, and you have to pay for the article. And I was like, listen, if we're hiding it that way, Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And I didn't mention it because I forgot to kind of mention the articles I was pulling from. But the one article I had been reading said there's going to be an update to this next or in June because we're going to do another deep dive. I looked for that article. There was no deep dive. Yeah. So something happened. The article was squashed. The secondary part of the article never happened. So either squashed or maybe they just didn't. Maybe they didn't find anything too. No, no, they seem like I was just playing devil's advocate for you, you right here. Sure, mm-hmm. I know, I know what you're trying to, but like, no, I, I want to know what happened here that you need to have nothing that we can spend probably three or four episodes on Penhurst. We just did, you know, two. Oh yeah, one longish one, but two. This can. This is only one episode because. There is such a lack of information. Yeah. You can paint your pretty picture of words, but we know you were doing surgical procedures that were lobotomies. We know you're using hydrotherapy and it wasn't the good kind, especially Mm -hmm. if Benjamin Rush gave you a tranquilizer chair for crying out loud. And you shipped off the the people you didn't want. I, I find that to be the nuance that probably bothers me the most because if this is a state run welfare hospital, you shouldn't be able to pick and choose. Whoever resides in your centralized area goes to your school or to your state hospital. But that is how we still today deal with mental illness. Whomever we don't want to deal with, we ship off. Mm-hmm. And that's where the rest of my episode is going to go now. It's going to be a discussion about our current help, and I put that in air quotes, for mental illness here in Pennsylvania specifically. Yes. I don't want to say worldly, but here in, like, in our area. So I hate to throw people under the bus, but I think it it bears needing discussion so we can be a better future. We can do better. So there's an article that I found. Um, it's called, Did Harrisburg State Hospital's Closure Lead to More Mentally Ill Prisoners? And it was on penlive.com. Mm-hmm. I love it because just like we did with Penhurst, they did this right. They showed both sides of the discussion. And you can fall on either side. 
but I do like the the a whole article because you see people on from the state hospital perspective, from the welfare perspective, and from the prison perspective saying what happened. And so you have one person who, uh, his name is Dominic DeRose. He's the warden for the Dauphin County Prison. I was hoping you'd bring this up, yeah. Yes. He said that his prison has had more people coming in who are mentally ill than ever before. So the loss of the bed space at the state hospitals has meant an overrun of mentally ill patients in prisons. Mm -hmm. So the reverse from the 1800s is true. It's no longer the insane and then having the criminals shipped in. It's having the criminals and having the insane shipped in. Yeah. Right. And I hate to use the word insane, but again, I'm using that 1800. Their terms. Yeah. Yeah. So. (sighs) And uh, the, the warden said, quote, they did not close Harrisburg State Hospital. They just renamed it the Dolphin County Prison. Yep. Um, and so you then you had this fight happening over and over. Well, it's not that. It's not this. It's, it never happened. And so the one quote that kind of popped out to me was, um, it said, People who are telling you their opinion about what has changed since the closure of the state hospital are largely opinions coming from people who never understood how an individual gets to a state hospital. Which is true. Mm-hmm. It's true. But when you start closing all these hospitals, instead of actually like fixing the problem, where do you put them? And as we mentioned before with Laura and Dan had mentioned it too, they end up on the street. Because yeah. they got there because families didn't want to take care of them. Or they were involuntarily sent mm-hmm. there, of course. Mm-hmm. But then where do they go afterward? Some of these patients cannot be paroled. They need to yeah. be in an institution. There's a reason for these places. But they shouldn't be given, you know, insulin shock therapy. There should be better <laughs> ways to take care of them. Um, so what what's interesting about this, going back and forth, is they actually do a really... What I found interesting was they did a really good review of what happened in terms of mental health and, like, the medicine being administered at hosp- at prisons as the hospitals closed. So if you skim through, you'll actually see, um, it says these observations within the company are hard to back up with data because you have the people from the welfare office saying, no, 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 it's fine. But prime care medical data can support the idea Uh that we have lots of people in the prisons that shouldn't be there. Overall, according to Prime Care Medical da- Medical's data, the proportion of inmates in prison it contracts with in Pennsylvania who are prescribed psychotropic medication has risen from 21% in 2006 to 28% last year. So from the closing of that one state hospital, you see this big jump because this article is you know, a couple years old, obviously. Yeah, it was an eight-year time span. Yeah. It went from well, fifth to a third of the population yeah isn't that crazy and so um it says uh, a little bit later in 2006 30 percent of inmates were on psychotropic medication on an average day last year though it did fall a little bit which is good because they're starting to help um but he said people who are coming here are very very ill he said the numbers don't represent the full increase in acuity because people who come here are becoming they're coming very very ill so, and he, I think it's later, he said, like, the people who are coming, I've never had people who are so, um, oh, he would say, like, categorically insane. So, oh, he said, we are seeing inmates who come in who are profoundly psychotic. 
We have never really seen that, but over the last few years, it's increasing more and more. And so that to me is concerning because that means that we are not doing our due diligence to put people where they need to be to help them. It's one thing to put people in their least restrictive environment because that's the best place for them. We should not be tying people down. We should not be giving them EST and insulin shock therapy. We should not be tossing them in water. There are better treatments that are available, and there are people who are trained in this that could take care of them. But we are not doing our due diligence. Yeah. To echo... Laura's comments from our Penhurst episode, uh, Sue Walter, the executive director of the Mental Health Association of Pennsylvania, when she heard about this, she said, quote, it certainly is concerning. I don't want people to have mental illnesses who have mental illnesses to be in a county jail if we can do better and we should do better. Yeah. And that. Is exactly what Laura said at the end of the Penhurst pod. Yeah, when you know better, do better. Yep. And when you know better, do best, right? Mm-hmm. Add on to it. And so, and again, when you're in charge of a prison, I, I actually, I really feel for him, uh, the warden, because he is not trained in that. You're, yeah. You're, it takes someone who is truly empathetic to do that job. Mm-hmm. You know, like someone like you. Like that, that is your job. You know, you know how to handle different types of special needs because you were trained in it. Well, I'd say any teacher, like it, ha- it's, it happens all the time in the education, not nearly to this degree or um, to this uh, level of need, but it happens where, you know, we get a student that we are not prepared for initially and we have to, you know, read up on it and talk to people and, learn how to best help this person because they're just kind of thrown upon us and we're like, Oh, what do we, how do we help this person now? What do I do? Yeah. Tell me. So as teachers, we, to a minor degree, we get it, but I still don't think we can ever fully comprehend what, (laughs) what the warden of a prison would be going through during this time. Well, and like for him, like I wouldn't know how to handle, you know, I mean, I work with eighth graders. So let me say, <laughs> like, I have some skills now. I could not run a, a prison. I just couldn't yeah, because no. that would that would freak me out. But I feel like I would I have better handle at taking care of someone who is autistic or has mental mm-hmm. disabilities because of being a teacher. He's not trained that. And I'm I'm not trained to take care of a schizophrenic or mm-hmm. someone who is psychotic. How would they know what to do? They're not trained in that. Exactly. And so they we need to do better, like especially like for PA, we need to do better. Yeah. And so I know that we had kind of discussed the idea that, you know, these institutions are being reopened. If if we had a progressive place like this place once was when it initially opened and we were training people, that is this beautiful utopic idea. And I would love to see a place that's like that. That lives up to the the desire, the the, the promise. But even when it was utopic and they were learning things, they still had these different therapies Mm -hmm. going on. And that's the part that we shouldn't have. And we should not be relying on psychotropic drugs to make sure that they're being contained Mm -hmm. or putting them in insulin coma. So they're not freaking out. Like there has to be something better than tossing them in a jail or tossing them on the street it's just not appropriate. Yeah. And so when I see places shutting down, like Norristown shut down in 2017, that was actually a pretty decent hospital. And so the question is, where do you go? 
Yeah. Where do mentally ill patients go? And that was when that was mentioned then in the Penhurst movie from the mom, like what the, that one person, where do they go? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I don't have an answer for any of this, but I can say that we in central Pennsylvania do have a place where a lot of people go who have mental health issues. So in central PA, we have a place called the Meadows. And you have heard Not of... Not far from us, yeah. I've had many Meadows. students, many students go to the Meadows. And that's important that we have students going to the Meadows because, again, I teach 8th graders. I have always taught 8th graders. So between the different schools that I've worked at, I've had kids who have gone to the Meadows as well. Yeah. And um, they're now... Like, this is from Vice News. The title of it is called Inside the Rural Psychiatric Hospital Staff that they call a 21st Century Asylum. Mm-hmm. That has to be worrisome. Yeah. Because this article was published June 30th, 2022. Yep. Yeah. So we already know what it's like. We've heard stories, the horror stories of the Meadow Psychiatric Center, but these places do still exist because we're not doing better. So before I read from here, PJ, what are some stories you've heard of the Meadows? That's the thing. My students would never talk about it when they came back. They were either heavily medicated afterwards or uh they or they're all ramped up from you know being back you know in school and having freedom again and uh and they you know we had a couple uh, a couple a bunch of like repeat uh return you know like what's the word a bunch of uh people who just kept going back uh but so the, the meadows that they kept being sent back? Yeah, they would just kept being sent back. Did they um, want to go? Were they crying over it? Or No, it's just that they had, you know, they they were, um, they had these compulsions and, you know, they, they would just act out and act out and act out. And uh, to the point where, you know, they were just ordered back there to get more help uh, because obviously it didn't work the last time. Yeah. Uh, is, you know, how they said it. Isn't that how insanity works, though? Doing the same thing over and over again? And expecting different, different results? results. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Um, so the article actually starts off with a story of a person who worked there and getting punched in the face um, by a different, by an inmate there. Um, and so when that story was told to somebody else who worked there and to, uh, sorry, a dozen current and former workers mm-hmm. of the Meadows. So current workers, I wonder if they kept their jobs. A lot of them are anonymous, but they said that incident was far from a one-off. It was a com. it's a common thing. Oh yeah. So, so many of the kids that I know who went there, they threw punches at me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's not surprising yep. at all. Um, but they, it's apparently it's rife with violence and it's both like they're attacking each other. And of course the staff, um, but what's interesting is when they talked to the patients there, the patient said that they felt like the Meadows was making them worse. They'd be, they'd be better mm-hmm. off anywhere else than the Meadows. Um, and that is just really, really sad to think that we are, it's the 21st century. It's post-COVID. So we have people who are really suffering from mental health issues, especially at the middle school level and the high school level. Like mm-hmm. the amount of mental health issues has really upticked and they can't even go here for help. Yeah. Because it's making them they, worse. They would learn behaviors there. That that was something else that we saw quite often is they they had an issue, go to the meadows to have that issue taken care of, and come back with two more issues that were completely unrelated to the first one. 
Yep. And that's kind of mentioned in Vice. It says, while some patients told Vice News that the the, quote, help they received at Meadows made things even worse for them. Workers claimed the hospital operated by a multi-billion dollar conglomerate as part of the largest network of private psychiatric facilities in the country is run by a managerial team that refused to listen to workers' repeated pleas for increased staffing and security to prevent incidents like the assaults that, that, that were allegedly committed. So, again, like, you have, it's a private facility, and mm -hmm. I, when I hear private, I get a little nervous. Yep. And when you say, like, hey, we have the degrees in this. This is what you need. And they're going, no. Yeah. I. It sounds like when you're a teacher, like, I have the degree in this. I know what I'm talking about. No, you don't. Get out of here. Shoo-shoo yeah. you. Or sure you do, but this is what we're going to make you do anyways. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in any case, uh, they they were, like, firing people from this place because they were trying to unionize over it. Mm -hmm. So, like, you're terminated wow. because you tried to unionize. Yeah. Which is insane. Now, Vice did reach out to the Meadows to ask for information, but they kind of refused. Who would have thought? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, there is a question. I think this is interesting, too. Uh, it was from a person named Teresa, and I'm hoping you pronounce this correctly, Hensinki. She's a 22-year-old um, who has been a mental health technician. Um, but she says, it's a shame that this is what mental health care looks like in this region when it's really not therapeutic at all. That, like, and she says, when you mix capitalism and human services together, especially something like institutionalized mental health care, it doesn't tend to pan out very nicely. Yeah. Which is true. You know, you want to yeah. make money make money the interesting thing about the meadows too is it's only about 15 minutes away from penn state university so again it's not very far from us it is a they describe themselves as a 119 bed private behavioral health care facility on a spacious 52 acre rural campus mm -hmm. it sounds pretty um but in 2020 it was serving more than 2,000 patients yep if it has 119 beds how are you serving 2,000 patients Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So just again, that right there, like, I mean, now again, it was 2020, so everyone's having mental health crises, but again, that is insane. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an interesting story. It says, Sajay Smith had just turned 21 when she checked herself into Meadows in October 2020 after suffering what she describes as a psychotic break. I was under a lot of pressure and just kind of snapped. I had no support system at the time and was going through a lot of uh, going through a lot and honestly thought everyone including my children would be better off without me but she, then in the six days she was at the meadows she says i absolutely hated it um she said every, she, the, the staff she was with they were beyond kind and helpful but she said there was one psychologist there especially who was emotionally abusive towards her she also said she never got her medication on time and was once forced to wait for it for an hour and a half while experiencing a panic attack. Jeez. Yes. And she said the other violence from other patients was often overlooked or ignored. During her very first, again, only six days she was there. During her first morning there, a woman, she said a woman started um, touching her hair and playing mm -hmm. with her hair. And this woman was uh, called a complete menace, apparently. So she learns this later. But she said, I was told to just let it happen so she wouldn't hit me out of anger. So, yeah, allow this person to touch you inappropriately wow. just so you don't get hurt later. Yeah. And going back to the panic attack thing, like for people who haven't had one, it feels like a literal heart attack. Yeah. Like it hurts and it's scary. Uh, so to be stuck having one for an hour and a half before you get medication for it. And then it takes off for medication to kick in. Yeah. Like... 
So then she says the food was also the, said the the food was not only bad but also inadequate. Gotta love that word. <laughs> I specifically remember one morning all I got was grapes and an orange sent to me. Wow. Hey, at least it's fresh. Hope I hope so. <laughs> but that's not gonna keep you full for long. You need protein, right? Yeah. Um, but she said um, Smith believes that her situation was made out to be worse than it was, so she could be held beyond three days, which is the amount of notice required by Pennsylvania before a person can leave a facility. Mm. She's still scarred, and um, she was. She said that like uh, here, um, I'm constantly worried that anytime I say anything about it, they'll think I'm crazy and send me back. I'm too horrified to ever go back to any inpatient facility to the point I try to ignore my mental health problems and pretend they're not there. I mean, what, do you blame her? I know, but isn't that sad? It's terrible. I'm just going to pretend that everything's fine. Mm-hmm. But you know what's going to happen when you when you push it down and push it down? You're going to have a break. Yeah. So you have people who are too horrified to ever go back because of six days spent yeah. here. She's like the modern Nellie Bly, which is just, oh, it hurts. It hurts my, my heart to think of. But again, to paint a beautiful picture for the Meadows, just like Penhurst, it was the staff and the therapists who are, who are buying things out of their pocket, just like teachers, to make things work. And so one staffer who spoke on an anonymity here um, for fear of retaliation said, to get something as simple as a pack of Crayola markers is like pulling somebody's tooth. We are buying our stuff out of pocket. Oh, yeah. Whenever anything's privately owned, I've you know been at a couple privately owned places, and it's always minimum amount of stuff is provided to you and you and if you're sent to the meadows you're sent there with like the clothes on your back like that's mm-hmm. something that no one wants to talk about again like in our area which was why students won't talk about it but you're sent there wearing whatever you were wearing and you're supposed to be changed into hospital garb but that doesn't happen there's a story here of someone also who's sent there whatever you have is what you have and they usually take away your phone for example because yeah. it can cause more mental health issues but that's all that you have yeah and they don't supply it and so actually that's the next thing here. If a new patient came in off the street with no clothes, just scrubs, the hospital hardly ever had any clothes for them. We would bring clothes from home or go to Walmart and purchase clothes and donate to the patients who needed it. So again, you're spending your own money to do mm-hmm. that. Well, if you're privately owned, how are you going to make money if you're spending money on all this stuff for people? Yep. Um, another person here who spent several days there said the water fountains had murky water and the water mm. tasted disgusting. Mm. Uh, to quote a current employee who res- who asked to be anonymous, says, no, the water looks like, and I'm quoting this, it looks like piss. And no oh. matter how much we push back on maintenance, they always insist it's totally fine and there's no issues. So the staff is trying to make it better. Yeah. So shout out to the staff for trying and staying there and, and well, trying I mean, so hard. Yeah, really, you don't. You don't sign up to be in this field to torture people. You know, at least I hope not. <laughs> hmm. Dr. Benjamin Rush. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but there, Jordan Beam, she was 21, checked herself into the Meadows last December. She was suffering panic attacks and other issues. She said, when I went to the Meadows, the only personal objects I had were a book and my medication and the clothes I was wearing. They never gave me clothes to change into the three days I was there. So she wore the same clothes for three days. Now, what's also interesting is she said they took her medication, okay, Mm -hmm. because she had started taking antidepressant, but she was also on antibiotics because she had a dog bite. They took her medication, 
For the three days she was there, she wasn't given either medication, even though she asked them repeatedly. Oh, my gosh. You should not stop antidepressants cold turkey, and you cannot stop a round of antibiotics. You need to continue yeah. it. And she says, while she was there, the psychiatrist prescribed her clonopin, something she said she never agreed to take and she was opposed to taking because uh, her family she has a family history of addiction. <laughs> yep. Oh so she says, after asking every single nurse on the floor for my meds, she finally was told the facility couldn't find her medication. Of course. So then her mother calls the facility and says, she need, I'm going to come pick her up. I'm taking her. And the Meadows responded by threatening a three on, 302 on her, which in Pennsylvania means an involuntary admission. And we know involuntarily committed is a bad thing. But they're saying because she claimed she was suicidal. She went there because she was having anxiety issues, among other things. But they were threatening a 302 on her. Wow. Yes. So I just find that really, really, like, horrifying. And so, again... And, like, the part of me that is, you know, like, the logistics have... side of me, who, you know, I'm thinking, like, the business owners of this place. Why would you want that person like who's going to be causing issues like why would you want to force them to stay there and cause problems for you wouldn't you want to get rid of those people you know and and make the you know like sure you're getting less money but there aren't that many of them right that the, the 119 the beds you got 2000 yeah. people exactly so like you can afford to get rid of the ones that are unruled you know like the ones that are speaking out and trying to make life miserable for you now if she did if the uh, if the other issues that she had was suicide then i would commend them for keeping her yes but i don't know that based on the article and it doesn't sound like it based on the article but she was taking an antidepressant and an antibiotic why weren't you giving her either of those? I know. So that's, again, like, I'm kind of like, mm, you, mm. okay. But anyway, um, now in 2020, sorry, 2021, they did have an inspection um, and they did get, vi they got hit for violating um, adequate treatment, adequate, mm -hmm. and not completing appropriate discharge planning, you know, saying we're going to let you leave here. Uh, we're going to go on parole and you're going to have a better life. But here's your transition service. You know, the words that we hear as special teachers all the time. Nope. The citation referred to one patient who was having suicidal ideations up to 24 hours before their discharge, despite regulations saying they had to deny suicidal ideations for 72 hours before being discharged. In February 2022, the agency verified that Meadows had completed a, quote, plan of corrective action. So they are getting better, apparently. But it has to make you, as like just a regular person, or like as someone who has, uh, you know, maybe some some depressive thoughts, it has to make you hesitant to want to check in. You know, like, yeah. because in no way is this helpful. It seems like it's pretty rough there. It makes you more stressed. It's frustrating. And it just has to be like horrible overall yeah. you know and i've seen kids who come back and they say no it's terrible i don't want to go back there mm -hmm. you know you've heard those kinds of stories so uh, one nurse called it uh controlled chaos and <laughs> i love that um she it says timmy craniac a registered nurse supervisor who worked at meadows for more than nine years said that working at the facility quote has always been chaotic but a controlled chaos and something we loved to do and she said when the pandemic began, however, the chaos soon became uncontrollable. So that is the yeah. root of all these problems is these staff shortages and too many patients. 
Mm-hmm. So I just, so again, we haven't changed. It's 2023 now yeah. and Meadows still exists. People are still going there and you know, Meadows really isn't equipped to handle severe cases, which actually is quoted in the text somewhere. Remember them saying that you don't get much training to be there as a mental mm-hmm. like health tech. And you're t- kind of tossed into this place and you have people who need help and you don't know how to do it. And that's the thing, too, is like when so many people need help and you don't have the staff to, to deny, you know, like to help them. You need to just start denying people. Mm-hmm. But then that looks bad for society for your business for everything because you know like you're putting up no vacancy signs so to speak (laughs) on your you know but it's the best way to help the people who are in there at least i mean i i don't know other than making more of these places for more people like what's the and what's the option there needs to be a conversation and i think that's like when i looked at this as this week's episode because i no longer have covid and i can like focus (laughs) and i really enjoyed our discussion of penhurst and our our listeners did too i feel like you know we were discussing something that started in the 1800s here in pennsylvania Mm -hmm. right whether it's the state hospital or it is penhurst but now we're in 2023 and not much has changed. We're still giving psychotropic drugs to calm people down. And we're still understaffed. And, and we're, yeah. So there needs to be a conversation where we say mental health is a real thing. Whether it's for the, the clinically, you know, insane. Whatever word you want to use now, because we have so many good diagnoses and we understand diagnoses. Yes. Whether it's for a schizophrenic or bipolar one or bipolar two, because we have the diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Whatever the case may be, we have treatments that aren't just meds. We know how to do occupational therapy. Mm-hmm. We know how to make transition goals. Let us do that. Yes, we need funds for it, but... We saw the city on the hill was a progressively beautiful idea, and it could have worked if it were now 2023, and we weren't doing things like (laughs) insulin shock therapy and water therapy, unless it's a nice hot bath, in which case I'm in. All right. Um, So like, or for a moderate amount of time, yeah, or just a hot shower. (laughs) None of this scotch douche thing. I don't want that. No. So, but like we have, we have the capacity now, we have the intelligence now, we have the empathy now, and we have the honest conversations since 2020 now Mm -hmm. to make a go of it. And it has to happen with us talking to another, because if we don't, the government's not going to change. They're looking for capitalism. They're looking for a way to do it with the least amount of money possible. You want to privatize it? Good. Not my problem anymore. Bye. Oh, absolutely. You know? And so I feel like that's kind of where I want to end no question this place is haunted you know it's not open for business anymore Mm -hmm. and things are getting moved around there's poltergeist activity it's haunted but it's haunted because of the negativity the things that happen there that aren't being said yeah and that we can't read about because if you don't know this harrisburg is the capital of pennsylvania yep that is why i think it's hush hush so i guess kind of want to end with the idea that it takes individuals working together talking one-on-one to and like then working with the government to change things if we don't do that we're going to keep reading these stories and i will have a job forever on this podcast (laughs) finding these horrible locations that make me sad and hurt my heart because we're not changing things and so i thought i would end with um, another quote from 1984 just because it fits so well um and so that's why like when i look at that city on a hill article 
that's if we allow the thought police, if you will, the government to come in and like t- sweep it under the rug and tidy up the words and use pretty mm-hmm. things like surgical procedures, then we're going to go, oh, OK, that sounds good and ignore it. And we're never going to learn from we're it. never going to learn. And so I thought I would end with a quote from 1984 because George Orwell, like, again, put it so well. And this is where I kind of want to end. We are the dead. Our only true life is in the future. We shall take part in it as handfuls of dust and splinters of bone. But how far away that future may be, there is no knowing. It might be a thousand years. At present, nothing is possible except to extend the area of sanity little by little. We cannot act collectively. We can only spread our knowledge outwards from individual to individual, generation after generation. In the face of the thought police, there is no other way. George Orwell, 1984. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wellhouse Exorcism. Please find us on Facebook and on our website. Listen to Games Overboard or Danger and Dice. Watch our board game designer interviews. We have a new one that's coming out just today as you're listening to this. Uh, And um, don't forget to uh, like us on Facebook and try to win that board game. We pick tomorrow who the winner is, uh, February 14th. So make sure that uh, you get in there and you, uh, you know, Get, uh, get, get your, your name, name in. in there. Yep. <laughs> get your name in there. So have a lovely evening and happy Valentine's have Day. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>